The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Are you all right? Is that machine? It's gone. Where are we? Southwest of Corona somewhere. They've been through this whole area and cleared everybody out. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, April the 16th, 2020. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be funny how anyone near corona is always getting cleared out and evacuated. (laughs) In a way, we're all finding ourselves southwest of corona in the sense that everything else in our lives seems to take second place to considerations about corona. The virus, that is. The one officially known as SARS-CoV-2. Over the last few shows on which we focused on the whole COVID-19 pandemic, we've pretty much covered the whole issue of statistics which has at last become a major talking point and wake-up call for the rest of the media. And we've talked about the very real threat of a police state environment evolving from the consequences of COVID-19 government policies. In our earliest discussions of COVID-19, we also covered what was known and not known about the SARS-CoV-2 virus at the time. Now, today in the latter half of the show, we'll be addressing the issue of how and when the government shutdown should end. The sooner the better is the general theme, and what I personally believe would be U.S. President Donald Trump's preference. But even Trump has exhibited certain reservations about opening the economy too early, which is one of the many reasons I've been thinking it might be time to revisit the nature of the SARS-CoV-2 virus itself. And I'll explain why right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform, and be sure to visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links and our archived broadcasts. And as always, consider offering your financial support Everyone who donates $25 or more will receive a copy of the 52-page full-color publication, Climate Essentials, written by one of our regular guests, Dave Plum, and who's actually offered some feedback for today's show as well. Now, there are three very disturbing themes emerging about the coronavirus pandemic. Number one, the increasing possibility that the SARS-CoV-2 virus was indeed engineered and manufactured in a Wuhan lab. Number two, the possibility that the virus is indeed not like any other virus in some very fundamental ways yet to manifest themselves. And number three, the political creation of a near-permanent state of emergency. Of course, the urgent issue of the day is when and how to restart the economy and how to defeat the SARS-CoV-2 virus, and that concerns only the last two of the three themes I mentioned. But I've raised the Wuhan lab possibility for a reason. The story has been emerging through some very credible news sources, though not necessarily so much in the mainstream and corporate outlets, and seems to be based on some very credible evidence. But this particular narrative is one that I plan to revisit at some future date should the story merit it. 
Now, you, you know, I was thinking about it. Of all the possible justifications that I could have entertained or invented to compel world governments to shut down their economies, the possibility that we've been deliberately attacked by China in a biological form of warfare has to be among the most compelling of all. I mean, it's the stuff that science fiction and fantasy movies so often depict. However, I'm going to reserve any comments I may have about the greater ramifications of this latter possibility for a future broadcast. But in the meantime, I would highly recommend that you check out the Rebel Media's April 2, 2020, in which Ezra Levant reports about Chinese researchers, coronavirus bats linked to Chinese government labs, not to wet markets. And there are some chilling scenes and documents related to China's viral ambitions in some of the material that was featured on that Rebel Media presentation. And then there's the Epoch Times documentary, suggesting the high possibility or probability that we're dealing with biological warfare. And that was posted on April 7th, 2020, tracking down origins of the Wuhan coronavirus. Bill Whittle also put out an April 13th YouTube presentation, Is the Wuhan Virus Man-Made?, focused on nothing but his reaction to that Epoch Times documentary and the implications that would follow. Now, I raise this whole thing about the Wuhan lab story solely for the purpose of being aware of it, since we won't have time to get into the details of that story on today's show. The urgency of reopening the economy, as well as immediately dealing with the virus itself, takes precedence over the current events in recent history that either caused or led to our current circumstances. However, the mere possibility of a human-engineered protein as the SARS-CoV-2 virus can certainly explain a lot of the seemingly irrational and unprecedented responses to it, particularly given the current changing statistics making the virus seem much less threatening than it first appeared. Got this from our regular listener Trevor D., Quote, if we do not take these measures during the annual deadly influenza season, then why are we doing it for this weaker virus? I've had enough of it. I'm fed up with it all. I ran out of food this week because the grocery store cut their hours of operation to quote-unquote keep everyone safe. I've gone from feeling annoyance to feeling anger, end quote. And you know, I had the same experience when I went grocery shopping down at my local No Frills grocery store last week. And I saw many people in lines outside being turned away because the store was closing at 7 p.m. And inside the store, there was a checkout line spanning the circumference of the entire interior of the store. And this is an inconvenience that is beyond anything most of us have ever experienced. And I don't know that it's all that necessary. But still, this is the world we're living in now. This is from Dave Plum who, of course, is a regular on our show, and he writes, quote, The CDC estimates annual U.S. flu cases in a range from 9 million to 45 million, with mortality from 12,000 to 61,000. If we accept the median number for annual flu deaths, we arrive at 36,500, right about where this COVID-19 death count presently looks likely to end up. In other words, COVID-19 looks to be on course to be the exact same toll as an average flu season. The difference is that we don't torpedo the global economy every time the annual flu season rolls around. Yes, I know, COVID-19 would have been so much worse if we hadn't curtailed people's freedoms, devastated numerous businesses, and driven national economies trillions of dollars deep into debt. But would it have been so much worse, really? How sure are we of that? It's speculative at best. 
Much as I love being right in my speculations, I'd love even more to eventually be proven wrong in this case, to have absolute proof that the containment measures we're experiencing really were necessary. But the statistics and progress of this thing so far say otherwise. Looks to me like it's running its course pretty much as it would have if we'd done nothing. Historical perspective begs the question, why all the panic now? More troubling still, will this become the new normal? We're presently living in what is virtually a police state, state control of private enterprises, suppression of personal rights and freedoms, the principal one being limiting association with other people with draconian penalties for civil disobedience. Snitch lines reminiscent of the Third Reich for anyone who's aware of history, and all of this seemingly accepted and in many cases welcomed by a naive public because it's for a quote-unquote good cause. If this were Ebola or something equally lethal, with mortality rates up to 90%, I could understand the justification. But this isn't that, end quote. Of course, the standard opposing response to what Dave just said is, well, not yet. Because you see, there still remain so many unknowns about the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And that's the story we keep getting. So coming up next are some very interesting coronavirus insights offered by two people whom I've had the pleasure of meeting personally, and who both appeared on past Just Right broadcasts and YouTube videos, and who both happened to be PPC candidates in the last election in Canada. That's the People's Party of Canada. On this side of the bumper, none other than Laura Lynn Tyler Thompson telling her own personal story about a drug that's been making the news of late. And on the return side of our bumper, some very chilling and quote-unquote troubling science about the coronavirus as described by Frank Vaughn, who has been sounding the alert on this issue long before it ever became newsworthy. But first, here's Laura Lynn. Hello, everyone and uh, welcome to the broadcast. I just wanted to talk briefly today um, about something very interesting um, to me personally. Um, I have told you before that uh, I take a certain drug because I have lupus and it happens to be the drug that is sort of at the height of the controversy with respect to what everybody is saying is a miracle drug, hydroxychloroquine. And uh, I have been taking this for um, about 14 years now. And it's an absolute miracle drug for me. It has very little side effects and it keeps my lupus in check because antibodies in lupus, they are um, like little crazed um, antibodies that attack everything rather than attacking a virus, rather than attacking some sort of disease or sickness. Sometimes it just attacks your person. And so um, I was very curious about this when it all came out that this was showing itself to be a real miracle drug. So I've been kind of following along. And it's been very interesting to me as I've watched sort of um, a little bit of the controversy going on in the States with Donald Trump and this Dr. Fauci. I saw several doctors from across the world talking about how this drug was really working that um, they had found 100% success. Now, that seems crazy, right? I mean, I'm, I'm sure that, that there must be, you know, 100%, that's just nuts. But it's working. When doctor after doctor in different, from different parts of the world were saying that hydroxychloroquine is a, a really good, you know, remedy 
it was interesting to me that when Donald Trump was saying, all right, well, we're going to order, you know, 29 million pills and we're going to deliver that, that then there was some pushback. And a guy from CNN, of course, the communist news network was saying, you know, well, we don't have any tests done, apparently. And Dr. Fauci was saying this as well. And Donald Trump was saying, listen, if this seems to work, then let's try it. There's there's nothing harmed if we try it and it doesn't work then we say well it didn't work but if it works it saves a lot of lives now I wanted to read you something um, about this virus this is from John Hopkins Hospital just to give you an example of what this virus really is uh, the virus is not a living organism but a protein molecule DNA covered by a protective layer of lipid fat which when absorbed by the cells of the ocular, nasal or buccal mucosa, changes their genetic code. So there's a mutation there and it converts them into an aggressor and a multiplier of cells. It's, it's only when it kind of latches on that it begins to multiply and then it becomes a really big problem. So since the virus is not a living organism but a protein molecule, it is not killed but decays on its own. The disintegration time depends on the temperature, humidity, and type of material where it lies. You may have heard that you should be drinking some hot water these days. If you have any kind of cough at all, this, um, this protein cannot withstand heat. The virus is very fragile. The only thing that protects it is a thin outer layer of fat. That is why any soap or detergent is the best remedy. Because the foam cuts the fat, that is why you have to rub so much for 20 seconds or more to make a lot of foam. By dissolving the fat layer, the protein molecule disperses and breaks down on its own. Heat melts the fat. That is why it's so good to use water above 77 degrees Fahrenheit for washing your hands, clothes, and everything. In addition, hot water makes more foam and that makes it even more useful. So besides all of this, uh, the fascinating thing to me was that uh, Dr. Fauci and others were giving uh, Donald Trump a very hard time about this hydrochloroquine and because I know and have been taking it for so many years I know that it's a really simple drug there's you know you know nothing happens to you because of it so why not try why not try if people across the world are saying that this works and doctors are reporting that their patients were recovering 100% and when I hear of people passing away my first thought is well were they on the hydroxychloroquine I'm going to talk about good news and our desperate need for good news and how short-sighted that need might actually be. we got to delve into the details and the reason why I've said all along the best thing that you can do is keep yourself healthy until we learn more about COVID-19. I see good news posts like this on social media. 43% of Ontario's total positive cases have now recovered. But those recoveries might be temporal. And here's why. Appearing on screen is a study called Neutralizing Antibody Responses to SARS-CoV-2 in a COVID-19 Recovered Patient Cohort and Their Implications. I'm going to get into the South China Morning Post, who summarized this study that I've just highlighted. Coronavirus, low antibody levels 
raise questions about reinfection rates. Scientists in Shanghai say some recovered patients show no signs of neutralizing proteins. Early stage findings could have implication for vaccine development and herd immunity, they say. Diving into the article, about 30% of patients failed to develop high titers of neutralizing antibodies after COVID-19 infection. However, the disease duration of these patients compared to others was similar. They found that young people showed low amounts of antibodies, which means that your immunity isn't guaranteed because you've had COVID-19 and recovered, which opens the door to serious issues when it comes to vaccine development. Vaccine developers may need to pay particular attention to these patients, Wang said. If the real virus could not induce antibody response, the weakened version in the vaccine might not work in these patients either. This is why a rushed vaccine that is mandated perhaps contains some sort of tracking mechanism, certificates of uh, the fact that you've received the vaccine. It might all be pointless if we don't go through careful clinical trials in the first place to make sure that the vaccine is actually effective at creating immunity. And this isn't the first time we've had this conversation. This is going back to February. I covered this before. Whistleblower doctors say coronavirus reinfection even deadlier. Chinese doctors sounding the alarm on the coronavirus say the illness could be even deadlier for patients who catch it again, according to a report. The whistleblowing physicians, these are the heroes of China, working to fight the virus in Wuhan, the epicenter of the outbreak, revealed that medically cleared patients have been getting reinfected. It's highly possible to get infected a second time, one of the doctors who declined to be identified told the outlet physician said that medication used to treat the virus can have negative side effects on patients' heart tissue, making them more susceptible to cardiac arrest. That particular piece is beside the point. But we've had this somewhat anecdotal evidence coming in. There have been studies published about this that reinfection is possible. Now, there's been two proposals for the reinfection mechanism. One is the virus just goes dormant in your body and reawakens later, like cold sores, like herpes, like these things that you can't get rid of. They're always with you, and then they break out again. That's really troubling. But what's also troubling is that you are not gaining, a third of patients are not gaining full immunity. A lot of these folks who have minor symptoms can potentially get reinfected again because their body does not gain immunity from it. And that reinfection, there's evidence to suggest that it can be even deadlier than the initial infection. So this is that second wave people are talking about. That's not fake news. That's a reality of previous epidemics that we have faced in the past. We're ignoring our history when we say that get it once, boom, you're immune. It doesn't always work that way. And there's some American health officials like Dr. Fauci who are really depending on this. They're promoting this idea that herd immunity is the magical silver bullet kill shot and that a vaccination will fix you for life. Except there's no real scientific evidence to suggest that's true. And in fact, we have scientific evidence to suggest that there's no such thing with COVID-19. That herd immunity might not be as easy as they are suggesting. Thank you, Mr. President. You may have seen how Sweden has responded to the pandemic. The schools are open, bars and restaurants are open. Sweden's different. Yeah. Do you do you regret not following that approach? Is that approach working? I think could we, we could have, have followed that approach. that approach. And if we did follow that approach, I think we might have two million people dead. And Sweden is having a lot of difficulty. You know, look, I'm very friendly with the leadership in Sweden. 
they took a different approach. They're a very disciplined country to start off with, but they did take a different. Uh, and, you know, other places tried it. UK tried it. The herd approach, okay? Herd. And they tried it. And you saw what happened in UK. It set them back a lot, a lot of time. It's been, you know, they're having a tough time. Uh, other countries have tried it. And Sweden is suffering greatly. I mean, Sweden's suffering greatly. Well, after hearing that, it's pretty clear that Trump doesn't buy into the herd immunity approach. If even one or two of the concerns we heard Frank Vaughn raise turn out to be factually true, we can understand Trump's caution, assuming it's based on the same knowledge, or I suppose on other knowledge he's getting from his own advisors. And just so you know, Frank Vaughn also cited emerging evidence that the virus may have multiple symptoms, symptoms totally unassociated with flu-like symptoms, among them lesions and growths and what appears to be burns on the skin, etc., etc. And given these new possibilities regarding the virus, my initial observation that it was likely already spread around the world before we were even aware of the first fatality in Wuhan could be taken as a harbinger of good news or bad news. Either it means that most people are already immune or unaffected by the virus, or it could also mean that the virus simply hasn't yet been triggered, somewhat like a time capsule form of medication you might take, or like a herpes virus, as was suggested by Frank Vaughn. Or maybe it's a time bomb to initiate a second or third wave of the pandemic. Regrettably, we have no solid evidence about the virus, statistics be damned, to make any definitive statements. And yet we continue to get headlines like this. Nothing like anything we have ever seen, written by Sharon Kirky in the National Post on April 11th. Quote, Some are now asking, can we stave off ventilating some patients and increase the chances of people being discharged from the hospital alive? The pandemic virus seems not only to affect the lungs, making them stiff and inflamed, but other parts of the body as well, including the heart. It's different in another way, too. In a phenomenon reported in the U.S. as well as in Italy and now Canada, some patients with severe COVID-19 are arriving in hospital with such low blood oxygen levels they should be gasping for breath, unable to speak in full sentences, disoriented and barely conscious. Except they're not in any sort of distress or very little distress. They're talking, they're lucid. It's not the classic acute respiratory distress syndrome that doctors are used to seeing and that most guidelines recommend doctors treat as such. One Brooklyn critical care doctor has likened it to altitude sickness and is urging his colleagues to be cautious about who's being ventilated and how. The concern is that the pressure may be harming the lungs and that some patients could be more safely treated with less aggressive means, oxygen masks or tubes in the nose. With some Ottawa patients, we're giving them all the oxygen we can give them without putting them on a breathing machine, and they're wide awake and talking, said a doctor downer at the hospital. In some situations, people are being flipped onto their stomachs, where we heard that before, into the prone position to improve gas exchanges. While the vast majority, some 80% of infections, are mild, the COVID-19 virus can cause pneumonia, which interferes with the ability of oxygen to get into the lungs and into the bloodstream. A ventilator does two things. It provides oxygen as well as pressure to open up the alveoli, the air sacs in the lungs, to get oxygen in and carbon dioxide out. While potentially life-saving, it can worsen lung injury. People who have been ventilated 
described the experience as awful beyond belief. The strategy for now is not to rush to intubate. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson was transferred out of ICU Friday after his condition improved. The 55-year-old spent three days there but had not been on a ventilator, a spokesman said, end quote. Well, there's a story that certainly confirms all of the suspicions and observations made by Anon in our own show last week, who is our own contact working inside an Ontario hospital's ICU and emergency department. Anon's insights describing how ventilators kill COVID patients were obviously on the mark and appears to have finally been recognized by an increasing number of healthcare professionals. This, of course, makes the whole frenzy over ventilators a relatively minor issue, especially given that in the United States they now have an oversupply, which Trump has already been offering to share with other countries who have shortages. Now, Anon has throughout this pandemic been keeping me up to date with frontline dispatches, some of which I will again share with you, this time beginning with this very tragic story, one that is sure to be repeated many times, but not cited in any official statistics. Where are the overwhelmed hospitals, asks Anon, and I quote, Paramedics brought in a young man in his 40s last night without vital signs, performing active resuscitation, but we couldn't save him. His poor wife, pregnant and mother of two small children sobbing, told me he had been having chest pain all week but wouldn't come to the hospital because he was paranoid about coronavirus and he followed our government's advice to avoid the hospital. Of course, we have to swab the corpse for coronavirus, and if positive, he gets lumped into coronavirus deaths, even if the virus had nothing to do with his death. The coroner told me that directly. He told me they are basically to stop all further inquiries into the cause of death on this criteria. Wow, what a horror show we are living in. People whose orthopedic surgeries were cancelled after showing up with lethal blood clots and mental health patients are committing suicide. Little of this is being reported in the media. Meanwhile, most hospitals sit way under capacity, often more staff than patients, waiting around for this tsunami of patients while people die in self-isolation. Doctors tell me they're suffering from corona tunnel vision. Their independent thought has been squelched, and diagnoses are often seen within this viral framework, which may have nothing to do with their issue. The aforementioned Orthopedic patient shows up with shortness of breath caused by a blood clot, but the corona blinder leads him to be tossed into an area full of potential COVID patients and proper diagnosis becomes hampered and death becomes more likely. We are on the brink of outright martial law, according to people I talk to with police and military connections. I just want this horror movie to finish, but it seems it's just beginning. Stay safe, end quote. Then a couple of hours later, we got this. Quote, As always, the caveat remains that I'm not a doctor and I speak only from my own bias. However, I just had my bias confirmed in the sense that the corpse I swabbed last night for COVID-19 came back negative, which supports my thesis that if we extrapolate widely from these isolated events I observe like this, our governments have widely enacted policies that are literally causing mass death as we speak, and this is barely a blip on anyone's concern in media or politics, so it seems. I'm happy to report that I'm doing my part to keep bringing this to the forefront of people's minds, because like I said, 
It's the passive and uncritical complicity of everyone from top to bottom that leads to travesties like concentration camps, end quote. And then later in the evening, I got this from Anon. Quote, it really shows you the arbitrary nature of hospital volume and flow when you see how many people can stay away from the hospital under the advice of the government. Here's my prediction. Whenever the restrictions get lifted after the so-called tsunami is over, we'll have to deal with another unintended tsunami. All the ruptured appendixes and gallbladders, all the cardiac complications, and all these people that are currently not getting treatment for legitimate emergencies will need critical care and many will die. It's also interesting to see how alcoholics, who might otherwise be functional at their jobs and whatnot, now stuck at home, are taking up very dysfunctional drinking habits, exasperated by boredom and anxiety, seeing a lot of those unintended consequences, end quote. Well, of course, the continuing big question now, of course, is when can we expect to be let out of our cages? Where to from here? On this side of our upcoming bumper, Tucker Carlson from his April 9th Fox News commentary, while on the return side, Laura Ingram's April 10th Fox News commentary. But in the past few days, the truth has seemed like a swiftly moving target. Some of the big numbers have been changing almost day by day. Others appear to contradict each other. In many other cases, the information just isn't complete yet and won't be for a while. It's all happening very, very fast. But at this point, a couple of trends are coming into focus. First of them, an awful lot of people are getting sick from this illness. Tens of thousands of new infections every day. Some of them are dying. It's horrifying to watch. But there's also a glint of brightness on the horizon, a forecast that many of us did not expect. Estimates of the final death toll have been revised dramatically downward. Dr. Tony Fauci acknowledged as much today. Do you think the number of fatalities in this country will be significantly lower than the 100,000 to 240,000 first projected? I do. I believe we are going to see a downturn in that, and it looks more like the 60,000 than the 100 to 200,000. But having said that, we better be careful that we don't say, okay, we're doing so well, we could pull back. 60,000 deaths, that's a very big number. And if someone you love is among them, it's everything. Yet at the same time, it is far fewer than many expected. It is a much lower number, and we wanna be as honest as we can about this, than we predicted on this show, for example. This is one of those cases when we are grateful to be wrong. And not just wrong about the death toll, the number of infected patients who need to be hospitalized has also been way below early estimates. We feared that a massive wave of desperate people struggling to breathe would overwhelm our hospitals and break our health care system. That was the primary concern, but so far it hasn't happened. Instead, something completely unexpected appears to be taking place. Across the country, health care workers are being let go or furloughed. Elective procedures have been canceled. That means there aren't patients for them to care for. Hospitals are running short on cash. In Oklahoma City, an entire hospital has been closed, except for its emergency room. Almost everywhere except the New York metro area, Detroit and New Orleans, hospitals, many of them, are sitting half empty or empty, thanks to a lockdown meant to ease pressure on hospitals. That's a story none of us expected to see. It's all pretty shocking given what we expected. But the weirdest thing of all is how little attention this is all getting. In a crisis, nothing is more important than staying connected to reality. Facts change very fast, and it's easy to miss them. 
and instead get trapped in a storyline that you created weeks or months before. That's especially a temptation in the news business, but it's how terrible decisions get made. The people making those decisions don't look up long enough to notice that their assumptions were wrong. Something like that may be happening now. Now, a stark reminder of how far we have fallen because of this virus and, of course, the shutdown. In early February, we had long lines to get into clubs and neighborhood hotspots. But in early April, Americans are now lining up for basic necessities. Over 1,200 cars lined up at this stadium in San Diego over the weekend. When they see that box of food coming into the car, some of them smile and some of them cry. As the president said, the shutdown, what it's doing, what it's obviously done to the income earning potential of people. We have record numbers of people at food banks, even in Boston. A friend of mine told me the other day he couldn't believe what he saw. The president said this state that we're in, this is like suspended state of animation, is unnatural. It cannot continue indefinitely, certainly can't continue much longer. We have to adapt to new information new data, and when the projections are off, as they've been off, we've demonstrated this actually almost for two weeks now, our response to that crisis has to be smartly adjusted and also safely. So new realities, new protocols, a phased-in reopening. Measures that work for New York, where things are still very tough, might not be necessary in Nebraska. That's okay. But unless somehow money really just does grow on trees, we need a reopening soon. A date certain where we can continue protecting the most vulnerable and at the same time reclaim our lives and our God-given freedom. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Well, sadly, Canadians are in no position to reclaim their lives and God-given freedoms. Mountie muscle to enforce quarantine, reads the headline in the National Post on April 11th, written by the Canadian Press. Home visits, arrests, possible. PM hopes rules ease by summer. Oh my God. Quote, the RCMP says officers could visit homes to ensure anyone entering Canada is self-isolating for 14 days, and police can now make arrests rather than issue a court appearance notice or summons. The RCMP says arrests under the Act, violations of which could include a fine of up to $750,000 and imprisonment for six months, will be a last resort. The Prime Minister reminded Canadians that vigilance against future outbreaks will be the norm for the next 12 to 18 months until a vaccine is developed. He called on Canadians to continue staying home, saying the country is still in the midst of the first wave of infections. This will be the new normal until a vaccine is developed, he said. However, Trudeau said he believes there can still be a gradual reopening of the economy. Well, isn't that nice to know? End quote. I have to tell you, this is scary stuff, folks. Trevor D. writes, I don't know if one is worse, the police state or the collective enthusiasm for it. When they come for others, you are still safe. When they come for you, it is already too late. And he added this little observation made by someone he knows, quote, 
Everyone should be locked in for at least two weeks. No person should be permitted out for any reason. Everything should also be shut down. The police should have authority to shoot violators on site and shoot to kill. The community cannot have the risk of someone infected with the Wuhan virus at liberty. After the two-week period has ended, those who had the Wuhan virus and died will not spread it to others. Those who did not have the Wuhan virus and died will not be infected. This will eliminate the spread of the Wuhan virus. Afterwards, the survivors can get back to the way things were before, end quote. Someone I know comes very close to thinking this way, says Trevor. It is shocking. <laughs> well, is his name Justin Trudeau, Trevor? Is that who you're talking about? Now, here's another great dispatch from Anon, and I quote, It has been decided at a global state... <clears throat> It has been decided at a global and a state level that some people's lives are expendable in an epidemiological social engineering scheme. The decision has been made that the livelihood and lives of innumerable small business owners, among many others, is expendable. But since the trade-off has been sold as a minor qualitative life sacrifice for some people in order to quote-unquote save lives in the absolute sense, people generally accept this narrative as noble. Putting aside the flawed statistics and the questionable benefit of indefinite universal lockdown in terms of spreading COVID-19 and mitigating mortality, it is important to consider the vast number of patients who are not getting the health care they otherwise would have. The complete upending of the hospital system to accommodate a virus that even by the highest projections will only kill perhaps 1% of all people killed in the entire year is going to result in innumerable other deaths. Just as the government has almost arbitrarily decided who is an essential business and who is not, they have also decided what health care service is elective and that which is not. So the person who comes into the emergency room today with chest pain cannot have a stress test for an indefinite period. There are tumors growing on people who've had their elective cancer surgery canceled. There are people lying around in a state of immobility because their elective orthopedic surgery was canceled and they arrive in emergency because of a blood clot. Because everything is funneled through the prism of COVID-19, clear diagnostic and treatment action is delayed. I won't even begin to talk about the devastation and suicides among the mental health population. The scenarios I described is happening on an enormous scale. People are dying and suffering on a mass scale due to universal lockdown. But because nobody's measuring it, there is no proximate medical or political intervention. I'm certain that some hospitals, in some places, must have to upend and reorganize in order to accommodate a surge of COVID-19 patients. It happened in Wuhan, Lombardy, New York City, New Orleans, for example. But this whole model-based narrative that healthcare system capacity is a metaphysical concept that can be engineered at the national political level is, in my view, what is actually going to indirectly kill a lot of people. All we have to do is look at the social engineering experiments of the past. It's always in the name of quote-unquote science. I firmly believe that what is happening right now is the culmination of many intellectual trends that have been mounting for decades. There's no conspiracy, and there's no single person or group at the center. Consider the concerted attack on the energy industry and all forms of production and human flourishing over the past decades in our culture. Most people aren't willing to give up their fancy vacations, their flights, and other consumption activities that give them joy, despite projecting their green virtues. But the intellectual hardcore in our universities has been determined to enact some kind of degrowth agenda for a long time. 
It is all too coincidental that overnight we lapsed into a world that has suddenly pathologized breathing, i.e. producing CO2. This new paradigm was foisted upon us by the stroke of a pen that basically told us that anyone at any point could potentially breathe on a friend and consequently kill their grandmother with emphysema. Whereas the mythology of CO2 destroying the planet was too abstract to get people on board with massive economic shutdown, this virus, which is a legitimate threat, has become the catalyst, in my view, to enact a profound escalation of a degrowth anti-human agenda that has been driving policy for years. This obsessional focus on a particular measurement such as CO2 or cases of COVID-19 is a kind of intellectual scholasticism that, in my view, is driving a deeper agenda. Again, I don't think this is a conspiracy, and I'm not dismissing the seriousness of the pandemic and the need for some level of quarantine. We are witnessing the enactment of intellectual trends that have been with us for decades. Again, just my thoughts. I have a lot of time to think because I'm sitting around in an empty hospital with lots of opportunity for contemplation, end quote. And that last thought is in itself plenty of food for contemplation when it comes to this whole COVID-19 pandemic. A couple of themes being used to justify all of the fascism is a purported reliance on the science or the statistics. And we must always be reminded that the reported daily increases in cases or deaths related to COVID-19 are more about an increase in our knowledge about the numbers, not an actual increase in the numbers themselves. Until you test somebody, you don't know whether they have something or not, and they might have had it for a long time. And when it comes to the science, quote-unquote, in this case the science of the medical professionals and others, I've said on this show from the very beginning that all medical professionals are fascists when it comes to politics. They have to be. Because of their singular focus on health, all other factors such as freedom and prosperity become secondary or non-considerations. Whether it's about smoking, vaping, eating the wrong foods, drinking soft drinks with too much sugar, you can always find a doctor or healthcare official somewhere calling for the banning or state control of whatever healthcare risk is perceived. And speaking to this very point, I got this additional dispatch from Anon on Tuesday morning, and I quote, I work with a pediatrician who tells me backyard trampolines should be banned. His view is the official position of the Pediatric Society. My children will continue to use trampolines. Experts be damned. Anesthesiologists and obstetricians react in horror when I tell them my children were born at home. Despite no evidence of mortality differences between home births and hospital births for uncomplicated cases, many obstetricians would have the practice banned. Notice how doctors are so much into banning things these days. Pediatricians want to ban trampolines, obstetricians want to ban home births, and public health experts ban public gatherings. All of it with total disregard for individualized risk evaluation. All of it with disregard to the well-documented harms caused by the medicalization and pathologizing of normal human activity. I speculate that the reason doctors these days lust for the power of the state to ban things comes from the basic awareness of the impotence and futility of many medical interventions. Paraphrasing Voltaire, the purpose of the doctor is to entertain the patient while they get better on their own. End quote. Trump was right a month ago when he said this. Don't forget the doctors, if it were up to the doctors, they may say, let's keep it shut down. Let's shut down the entire world. Let's keep it shut for a couple of years. Well, 
Dr. Fauci himself has dismissed as anecdotal, cheap, scalable, decades-old therapies that are already vital weapons in the battle against COVID-19. They show real promise in keeping people not just out of the ICU, but out of the hospital altogether, just like the CDC director. They're like this on the issue. On this subject, this is big news today, French President Emmanuel Macron made a surprise trip to Marseille today to that infectious disease institute of Professor Didier Raoult. Now, he's a renowned epidemiologist in all of Europe. Macron was handed the results of a follow-up study of more than 1,061 COVID patients that were put on a regimen of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. The preliminary report contained some very good news. Now, the results are still being analyzed, but the virologic healing was achieved in 973 of the patients in 10 days, or an efficacy rate of 91%. But what about the critics who cited possible serious complications of these drugs? Well, Professor Raoult found zero cardiac complications in any of his subjects. America has some clinical trials of its own going, going on right now, but this French data confirms what our own Dr. Stephen Smith, he'll be on in a few moments, found in his infectious disease practice as well. This is good news. And thank the good Lord, we have a president who recognizes the importance of advancing these medical solutions as fast and as safely as possible. But this, this is the kind of thing can happen. This is very complex. This is a very brilliant enemy. You know, it's a brilliant enemy. They develop drugs like the antibiotics. You see it? Antibiotics used to solve every problem. Now one of the biggest problems the world has is the germ has gotten so brilliant that the antibiotic can't keep up with it. Or the question is, because those are the models you've been using, if you do go with opening up, starting to open up the economy again on May 1st, doesn't that lead to more deaths? Well, look at how much it changed with mitigation. Right. Do you want to come up here and say what you think about models? Okay. Dr. Rorson, you have to say something. I just want to say that, you know, you talked about uh, couldn't it lead to death, meaning you open up, could lead to death, and you're right. But you know what? Staying at home leads to death also. And it's very traumatic or this country. Uh, but staying at home, if you look at numbers, that leads to a different kind of death, perhaps. But it leads to death also. So it's a very big decision. As I say, it's the biggest decision I'll ever make. But if I can, just to follow up then. You, you chose not to do a national stay-at-home order. Now that you say you want to reopen parts of the economy, what authority do you have to do that? Isn't it ultimately up to the states to yeah. do that? Yeah, no, it's really the states can do things if they want. I can override it if I want. But the national stay-at-home, just so you understand, 95% of the country is stay-at-home. Like, as an example, I was speaking with the great governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, the other day. Uh, he has a stay-at-home. A lot of people didn't even know it. But he had a stay-at-home. Some people reported Texas wasn't. He had a very strong, actually a very strong stay-at-home. Uh, 95 to 96% South Carolina, as you know, has it which at one point a week ago they didn't have South Carolina, another great governor, McMaster. Um, no, 95% uh, of the country is covered. Now, 
the states that aren't, and again, constitutionally, from a federalist standpoint, if I thought there was a problem, if I saw a state with a problem, I would absolutely demand it. But they're doing great. And the states that aren't are states that have not had a big problem. Well, what authority do you have to reopen right now? The same way that it's up to the states to shut it down, it's yeah. up to them to reopen. I have, what authority I have, have great authority if I want to use it. I would rather have the states use it. What's I would rather, and this is so shocking for me. A lot of people are saying, wow, he's really very reasoned, isn't he? A lot of people are shocked. They think I'd do it. I have absolute authority to use it. But so far, our relationship with governors and the job they're doing, I haven't had to do it. Jeff? Mr. President, there's obviously a lot of interest in how you're going to make that decision. What? Yeah. what That's a very big decision. What? I don't know that I've had a bigger decision than that when you think, right? I, would think? Think. I mean, think of that decision. Somebody said it's totally up to the president. I saw this one. It's totally up, and it is. I don't know that I've had a bigger decision. But I'm going to surround myself with the greatest minds, uh, not only the greatest minds, but the greatest minds in numerous different businesses, including the business of politics and reason. And we're going to make a decision, and hopefully it's going to be the right decision. I will say this. Uh, I want to get it open as soon as we can. We have to get our country open, Jeff. Can you say, sir, what metrics you will use to make that decision? Uh, the metrics right here. That's my metrics. That's all I can do. I can listen to 35 people. At the end, I've got to make a decision. And I didn't think of it until yesterday. I said, you know, this is a big decision. But I want to be guided. I'm going to be guided by them. I'm going to be guided by our Vice President. I'm going to make a decision based on a lot of different opinions. Some will maybe disagree, and some I'd love to see it where they don't disagree. Will there be risks? There's always going to be a risk that something can flare up. There's always going to look. Look at what's happening where countries are trying to get open and there's a flare-up and they'll go But I'd like the flare-up to be very localized so that we can control it from a local standpoint without having to close It's it's a, there's always a risk. This is a this is genius that we're fighting. You know, we're fighting this hidden enemy Which is genius. Okay, it's genius the way it's attacked so many countries at so many different angles and I mean you take a look at what's going on and the greatest doctors in the world, I think they're close, by the way, but they haven't figured it out yet. Look what it's done to some people. I mean, some people it's grabbed, and it's a uh, it's a horrible it's a horrible way to go. You want to know the truth? It's a horrible. And then other people, it hardly has an impact on. We talked about it. It sniffles. It's less. They don't even know they had anything. And some people. I looked at uh, New York this morning, and I look at what's happening and the amount of people that are dying, and dying, violently dying. It's a, it's a, it's a very tough adversary. But we're going to win, and we're going to win it. We're going to win it uh, very decisively. I'm going to have to make a decision, and I only hope to God that it's the right decision. But I would say, without question, it's the biggest decision I've ever had to make. So as we can hear in those very clear and explicit statements made by Donald Trump, I want to get it open as soon as we can, we have to get our country open, he's determined to get the country open. And remarkably, Trump is the first politician I've heard anywhere attesting to the fact that the shutdown itself is a death to many people as well. And when asked what his metrics were that he would use in arriving at his decision, Trump just pointed to his own head, and that's when he was saying, my metrics are right here. 
meaning that he is fully accepting the responsibility and accountability of his decision. And I find this extraordinarily reassuring and is further evidence of why, as I've said in the past many times, Trump towers above the rest. Trump forms council to open our country, reads the headline in the National Post on April 11th. And I quote, Trump has sought to end economy-crushing social distancing practices that have curbed the spread of the coronavirus as soon as practicable, though his aides have cautioned that May 1st may be too soon. Dr. Anthony Fauci, the government's top infectious disease expert, now is not the time to back off, Fauci told CNN on Friday. The virus will decide when the country can open, he added. End quote. Well, of course, the virus does not make decisions. It's people who make decisions. And there again is a doctor making it all about the medical issue itself. Got this from Dave Plum, who wrote me a while ago, and he said, I picked up my laptop at the computer store yesterday afternoon. The owner said that as of Monday, they would be shutting down completely. New rules was his explanation. I asked how concerned he was about this whole situation. He said he wasn't at all concerned about it, but that he didn't have a choice. I said something like, you'll be back when this is all over though, right? And his response was, we'll see. Not a good feeling. This is chilling, starting to feel like we're living in the Fourth Reich, end quote. And Dave's misgivings are echoed again by Trevor D., who this past Monday wrote about conventional service interruptions and new hours at a downtown location. Quote, From home I walk straight to the grocery store because I have no food left, and that takes me about 30 minutes to walk about 2 kilometers. The grocery store now has red arrows on the floor directing everyone. Areas are purposely blocked off to keep shoppers from wandering off course. I felt like a mouse in the maze searching for my food. I am about ready to explode as a result of all this communist insanity around me, end quote. And that was a great way of describing my own experience at the grocery store, Trevor. What's amazing is that inefficiency has been introduced as a means of dealing with the virus. As a rule, when I go shopping, I only use the 12 items or less checkout counter, which speeds people through the store. But the last time I shopped, I only needed a handful of items, yet had to spend almost two hours in a store standing in line. Under normal circumstances, I would have been in and out of there in about five to ten minutes. Now you know why inefficiency and communism go hand in hand. <laughs> and then Trevor sent us as well, along with that, his revised copy of the Canadian Bill of Rights. (laughs) And basically, it's the same as the old Canadian Bill of Rights, but with certain words crossed out on it, such as life, liberty, security of the person, enjoyment of property, the right not to be deprived thereof except by due process of law, equality before the law, protection of the law, religion, speech, assembly, association, press, all these words were crossed out, you see. (laughs) You trying to tell us something, Trevor? I think you're describing what I've been calling the state. The state of emergency. What better way to circumvent long-established, traditional, and fundamental individual freedoms than by declaring an emergency in which the state will promise to save our lives while simultaneously threatening to fine, imprison, and shoot us if we dare to live those lives? Give me a break. This is about way more than the virus. The really big story is why our politicians, the mainstream media, and the left are so upset about something like hydroxychloroquine success stories. It's quite possible that this may be more a cure for the disease than any vaccine, especially given the possible different nature of this virus as against other known viruses. 
Now, one of my own sisters has rheumatoid arthritis and was using hydroxychloroquine for four years back in the 1990s. However, she developed an allergy to it and had to resort to alternative treatments. So yes, there can be individual incompatibilities, but nothing approaching the threat presented by this virus pandemic. Those opposed to the use of chloroquine are all pretending to be concerned with the welfare of the patient, citing possible side effects and risks to their health without any consideration of the circumstance that is already a severe risk to the health of the patient. And the very notion that anyone other than a specific patient and doctor should evaluate the risks involved with a medical treatment speaks to an entirely different agenda from one sincerely concerned with ending the health threat. The people upset by successful coronavirus treatments are the same groups who are disappointed and angry about the lower-than-expected case and death numbers by the higher level of o- and oversupplies of needed medical equipment and by the empty beds and empty hospitals. Why would that upset you? Again, writes Anon, quote, I'm not sure we are dealing with a legitimate public health crisis, certainly not warranting indefinite universal lockdown. Iceland recently tested 10% of their population, and based on the rate of 50% of asymptomatic cases, the death rate was 0.004%. The death rates in the so-called war zones like Lombardy or Wuhan don't even add a blip on the total death rates for their respective countries. I just spoke to a friend who is struggling to stay afloat amid crippling five-figure rent payments as he's forced to shut down his business. Barricades at all the park entrances legit snitch lines, everyone running around in masks. None of this adds up. It never added up from the beginning. The elephant is in the room. This is all being driven by scientists and intellectuals. Many stupid ideas, very smart people, uncritically following along. Useful idiot is apt. An impassioned response is what is lacking, end quote. Well, I certainly agree. And when it comes to the greater questions regarding why this viral event is being treated so differently than all the others in the past, as questioned by Anon, as questioned by Dave Plum, and by so many people who are really scratching their heads about this one, you know, I'll have to tell you, my spidey sense is tingling. The really big story is not the coronavirus, although it's part of it. I think the real story has yet to begin. And I've already hinted at some of the possible chapters of this story, earlier in the show today. But no matter the numbers and no matter the nature of the virus, the really big pandemic we should all be concerned about because it affects each and every one of us without exception is the political pandemic, one that could lead to the permanent establishment of the state, the state of emergency. No one can ever be free or secure in that kind of environment, and this is a danger that cannot be overstated. Now, from the beginning of this whole COVID-19 crisis, for his part, and given the cards that he was dealt, Trump did exactly what he knew he had to do. Now he has to undo it. Faced with what he himself has called the biggest decision of his life, and given the criteria and means by which he said he would arrive at his decision, I'm hoping the odds will favor a decision that is just right for the United States and for the global community as well. And of course, We'll all know more by the time you join us again next week as we continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right.
please. Uh, yeah, thank you. I have a quick one and then a longer one. Um, first of all, happy happy. Hey, should we keep this going, everybody? Huh? You're the president. Jim wants to leave. No. <laughs> keep it going for a while. Yes. I mean, we have time. If you want, you're like you're not going to criticize me that the conference was too long. You know, if I leave short, yesterday I left short. It was too short. If I stay too long, they say it was too long. Someday we're going to get it just right. Okay. Um, have you had a chance?